Well, good morning, friends. Welcome to Ridgefield Baptist Church, where the gospel changes everything. Uh, great to have you in for our morning service today. And of course, we are fully live streaming today because of the weather. And with that in mind, here's a passage of scripture that I was thinking about this morning. It's out of Psalm chapter 90, verse 1. This is the song of Moses, by the way, in the, in the Psalms. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. God is our dwelling place. He's the place we hide ourselves. Now, aren't you glad that you have a dwelling place right now with the weather as it is? Otherwise, you'd be exposed to the elements or kind of huddled in a corner or under a tree. So maybe you're in a house, maybe you're in a hotel, uh, you're in some kind of shelter that kind of protects you from the elements. That's the idea in Psalm 90 verse 1, that God is our dwelling place. And the only things that he allows into our lives are things that he has a purpose for, even if they're challenging. And we can trust that God will shelter us and protect us and be every bit of the God to us that he promises to be. That is God's promise to you this morning. That is God's promise to me that he is indeed our dwelling place. Well, again, this morning we are doing full live stream, so I want to welcome everybody who's joining us this morning. Thank you for taking the time to worship with us. The roads were kind of bad this morning. It was going to continue to snow um, right through 11 o'clock or something like that, and we didn't want folks coming out. But we wanted to bring you God's Word this morning and just give you some encouragement from Christ and His church. And so this morning we're going to do a little bit of a modified worship service. As you can see, I'm the only one on the platform. We don't have our worship team with us. Uh, What we're going to do this morning is I'm going to read Uh, the parable of the prodigal son, the two sons. That's the passage we're going to talk about today. We're going to conclude it next week, but start it today. Then I'm going to pray, and uh, then we're going to bring the sermon, the parable of the lost son. So I want to begin by reading God's word in uh, Luke chapter 15, and we're going to read the parable in its entirety. It's a wonderful story. By the way, none less than Charles Dickens said, the parable of the prodigal son is the greatest short story ever told. Ralph Waldo Emerson said the same thing. This is the greatest short story that's ever been told. If you're a Christian, I hope you will lean in to the parable of the prodigal son because it's scripture and we believe Jesus spoke these words and it's important. If you're not a Christian and you just dropped in with us this morning, no problem. If great writers like Emerson and Dickens tell us this is the greatest short story ever told. Maybe we should all lean in and kind of see why this is such a special story. So here begins the reading of God's word, the parable of the lost son. I begin in verse 11. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, It was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property with reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired to himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have enough bread to spare, but I perish with hunger? I will arise, I will go to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion on him. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put the ring on his finger, on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your commandment, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, he's devoured your property with prostitutes and killed the fatted, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to his son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. I invite you to pray with me this morning. God, I thank you for your wonderful grace. Thank you for the extravagant love that we see in this parable. That you pursue people and you call people by your side. Even while they're running away from you, you have them in mind. You work in their hearts, in their lives. Sometimes you even send a famine into the land to help us return. I pray that we'd be responsive to the love and the hand of God. Today, Lord, each one of us is running from you in different ways. Help us to search our hearts. Help us to be honest. I pray that we would not push back against that conviction and against the love that you give us but help it to embrace us. Remind us there is a love that will not let us go. And so I pray that we would yield our flickering torch to thee. Jesus, I want to thank you for protecting your church. Be with each and every one under the sound of my voice, and even those that can't join us today. Meet each need. Some are very lonely. Touch their hearts. Some are without help. I pray that you'd bring them economic support. Some just have mental trauma, emotional trauma. Heal hearts, heal lives. I pray that we would realize all that we have in Christ. We understand that our faith does not do away with all the problems of this world, but it can help us weather the storms if we'll allow it to do so and we'll lean into you. Bless our families, bless our singles, our widows, our widowers. And I ask God that you would Work in everybody's life this week that's part of RBC. Jesus, keep us safe. I pray that there'd be no accidents here in our area or in the roads, especially with our RBC community with the snow coming. And God, I pray that this week, as we go to our nine to fives tomorrow, that it would be a time of, of really being the salt and light you want us to be. We do this so imperfectly. We do it so imperfectly, sometimes we quit. Help us not to do that. I pray that we would be the kind of people that would represent you well wherever you put us and help us to be loving and kind and just direct people's thoughts towards you. We live in a world that tells us 
all there is is what we see. We need to lift people's eyes to the fact that there's more and remind them there is a hunger that only God can satisfy. Bless your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm really excited to bring you the first part of the parable of the lost son. And I want to start with this. In order to understand the parable, I mean, to really understand the parable, we've got to kind of get into the culture of the first century. And this is hardest to do as Westerners, but I think we can do this if we walk through the parable and understand that there is one paradigm in particular that dominates the landscape of the first century and would dominate a story like this. And that is called shame and honor. Shame and honor. There's a lot of scholars that have done work on shame and honor, specifically with Luke 15. Uh, Kenneth Bailey, University of Beirut, has done as much work as anybody I know. And he tells us you can barely even understand the parable if you don't understand the background of shame and honor. In other words, in the first century, the code went like this. You never did anything to shame yourself, and you only did things that brought you honor. Today, we call this saving face or something like that where we don't want people to embarrass us. We want to make sure we look good in other people's eyes. We want to be held up by people we admire, whether it's coworkers or people in our community, maybe even in our families. We hate being shamed. We only want to be honored. One writer said this. He said, honor was universally regarded as the ultimate asset for human beings and shame the ultimate deficit. Let me ask you a question. If I asked you in today's world, what is the ultimate asset? Most of us would say something like finances or political power. In the first century, it's honor. You did everything to uphold your honor. You never did anything to shame yourself. You had to retain your honor at all costs. The community would not even come to your aid in time of trouble if you were a person that was shamed as opposed to honor. There are some crazy stories in the Bible that make a little bit more sense when you understand the shame-honor paradigm. Uh, 2 Kings 2, Elisha, one of the prophets, there's a group of of, uh, boys that are picking on him. They're kind of picking on what he looks like and picking on some of the things he's doing. And he curses the two children, and two bears come out of the woods and just maul the boys. And you and I are like, isn't that kind of like overkill? I mean, mean, they're picking on you, but you don't want to curse them and bears come out of the wood. Well, what happened there is the prophet is upholding his honor. He's being shamed. That dominated the landscape of the first century. In the first century, readers would have less problems with a story like that than we would because they understood the shame-honor paradigm. Modern writer Malcolm Gladwell writes a little bit about this. He talks about how shame and honor even play into the modern world, mainly in the East. And he tells us that some of the most skilled pilots in the world have some of the worst accidents And that's because the co-pilots hesitate to speak up when there's a problem. They don't want to upstage the senior captain. So even when something is going wrong in the plane, you have to maintain the honor of people around you and your own honor. And you don't want to shame yourself. You don't want to shame a senior member. So even when you think there's a problem with the plane, Westerners are more likely to speak up. Gladwell says Easterners are not. And that's why some of the best pilots in the world get into some of the worst wrecks, because people can't talk to them. They're too full of honor. So Bailey tells us and others that the parable is dripping with shame and honor. And by peasant standards, let me tell you, this family that we're looking at in Luke 15 is right, downright dysfunctional. It's so outrageous what Jesus says here, it can only be a parable. And I want to walk through the story with you for a little while here. 
So first of all, let's notice this. We have an outrageous exchange. Verse 11, an outrageous exchange. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to the father, give me the, uh, my share of the estate. Now the boy is still single, so we're presuming he's like an older teenager, maybe 16 to 18 years old. So let me ask you a question. When does the inheritance normally go to the son? It's after the father dies, not before the father dies. So when a son looks at the father and says, Father, give me my inheritance, what is he really saying? He's saying, Father, I wish you were dead. What an incredibly disrespectful thing to say to a father. And he doesn't want the father. All he wants is the family farm. No son, especially in the first century, especially not the younger, would ask the father for the inheritance before the father is dead. And by the way, he's out of line because the elder son is the one that the inheritance would primarily fall to. This son is disrespectful. And I can tell you this, in a community like this, word travels fast. The fact that this son looked at his father and basically said, Father, I wish you were dead. Give me all your money now. That's starting to spread around the community. A little bit down the story, it's going to say that not after many days he went into a far land. Now, we read that as something like, you know, he just just wants to be quick to do his own thing. And that may be true. What's probably happening now is the community is starting to shame him. This kid shames his father. Word starts to spread. There is an immense amount of heat on this young man. He has no choice to get out of that village as fast as he can. By the way, he asked for the estate. King James has inheritance. Uh, I think most modern translations use the word estate. If he asked for the inheritance, that would mean he's saying something like this. Father, I want to start taking more responsibility around here. But he uses the word estate. It's the only time in the New Testament this word is used. And what he's saying is, I want your stuff. I don't want anything to do with you. And what kind of disrespectful son does this to a father? That's what everybody's thinking. When you and I read this parable, we are moved with sentimentalism. But I can tell you when Jesus spoke this for the first time, everybody standing around is saying the same thing. Would somebody please Put that kid in line. So what does the father do? Well, he divides his living. Two-thirds to the older, it'd go one-third to the younger. And at this point, the people listening are thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Bad enough that the son shames himself. Now the father is shaming himself. So originally they were thinking, somebody needs to straighten this kid out, and now the people standing listening to Jesus are probably saying something like, somebody knock some sense into that father. Because the father has to uphold his honor. He has to uphold his place in the community and the place in his family. He cannot allow the son to shame him or it brings shame on the whole family and frankly shame on the whole community, and people are just not going to stand for that. It's an absolutely outrageous exchange. Now, there's outrageous excess in verse 13. The story goes on where Jesus tells, Not many days after, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property with reckless living. Again, some the old writers would say he's quick to sin. He's quick to sin. I don't doubt that's true here. But more likely, there's a burning scorn now in the community 
And people want this kid out because they want to uphold the honor of the whole community. You can't have somebody in your community acting like this and be an honorable community. So what does the younger son do? The younger son gathers all he has. Let me ask you a question. How do you gather one-third of a massive estate in days? There's only one way. You sell it for pennies on the dollar. You trivialize the estate. You liquefy it. Will nothing stop this kid from shaming everything that he knows? And what does he do? He goes into a far country. Now, to you and I, a far country is something like Japan or maybe Brazil. Far country, of course, according to the parable here, just means Gentile country, non-Jewish country. And he wastes his substance with riotous living. So let's kind of catch up a little bit. He shames his father. He shames his community. He shames his religion. He shames himself morally. And at this point, everybody is standing around as Jesus tells this story, and they're saying this, no way this would never happen. This is too outrageous. No kid in the world could possibly be this bad. (laughs) Jesus is painting a picture of the ultimate reprobate according to first century standards. The most shameful picture you could possibly paint. That leads us to the third point, outrageous existence. Verse 14. After he spent everything, there was severe famine in that whole country. He began to be in need. Now, Famine to you and I is different than famine in the first century. Famine to you and I means you cut back on your water a little bit. We don't water our grass, maybe. Or maybe there's a supply chain issue, and so we've got to go without, I don't know, a certain kind of meat, or you've got to pay a lot of money if you want this kind of chicken or something like that. But famine in the first century was absolutely severe. People died regularly in famines. It would absolutely wipe out villages. They would resort to eating anything, and I mean literally eating anything. They would sell their children into slavery. There's all kinds of stories about this that come from the the ancient world. There was a law on the books that said in time of famine, if someone dies in your front yard, you're responsible to remove the body. That's how common death was in the first century in a famine. And so what does this man do? What does this boy do? He attaches himself, verse 15, to a citizen. Don't lose that word. Citizen of that country. The word citizen here comes from a Greek word that means a member of the Greek society. So this boy has lost everything he has. Now he's attached himself to a Gentile master. This is going to come back later in the story next week. I don't want to touch it too much now. But what's ha- in, in the ancient world, in Jewish customs, one of the most shameful things you could do is lose your estate. Remember that land in Israel is blessed and important. Lose your inheritance to a Gentile. It's the most shameful thing you could do. By the way, there's, there's of course, a side note here that Christianity teaches, and frankly, I think every other religion teaches, which is immediate gratification versus delayed gratification. And the picture Jesus is giving us here is that this young man will not delay any gratification. Whatever he wants, he wants it right now doesn't work out so well for him. And we're told here as Christians to make sure we're not just living for immediate gratification. Let's, let's think about the long game. Think about suspending some of the emotions and the needs that we feel we have in the immediate in order to live a healthy life in the future. 
I remember hearing a story by Paul Harvey, the, the, the radio personality. And he used to tell this story. I've heard him tell it a couple times about some of the, uh, the old tribes, how they would hunt a wolf. And they would take that knife and they would coat it with a little bit of blood and just stick it up into the ground. And a wolf would smell that blood and come and just start licking the blade, licking the blade. And of course, the more he licks the blade, his tongue starts to bleed and he starts to get more and more of an insatiable appetite for the blood. And of course, it isn't long before he bleeds out and that's how they would hunt. That's the prodigal. He doesn't know a thing about delayed gratification. So what does he do? He wants, he wants, he wants, and he won't let go. And before you know it, he's laying on the ground in a pool of his own mess. Now, verse uh, 17 through 19, here's an outrageous expiation. Verse 17 is beautiful. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now there's a difference between a slave in the first century and a hired servant. A slave is probably higher than a hired servant. A slave would live with the family. A slave was part of the household. Don't don't conflate like old world American slavery with what's happening in this passage. It's a different thing. A slave in the first century in this context, Jewish context, a little bit more like an indentured servant. Not exactly, but a little bit more like that. So the slaves actually had some rights in the first century. The hired hands, the hired servants, they had no rights at all. They had to be paid day by day. They were not taken care by the household. These would be the kind of people that would stand on the corner of the street, and maybe if they were lucky, they would get hired. The only law in the books for the hired servants was you had to pay them directly at the end of the day. Uh, you couldn't wait till the end of the week because probably they'd starve by then. Now, we've got a whole sermon here on what Christians call common grace. Listen to this language. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare. What does that teach us about God? You know what that teaches us about God? God not only takes care of his own children, takes care of the whole world. (laughs) Takes care of people that aren't even a part of his own household. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And the prodigal realizes that even being one of the hired servants of the Father shows remarkable benevolence from God. Here's an outrageous exoneration. Verse 20. Notice four things here. First of all, he brings a robe. The Father runs, embraces him, kisses him, then brings four things. He does not bring a robe. He brings the robe. The Father had this one robe. It showed his dignity and it showed his strength. Remember in the story of Esther where Mordecai, when he's honored, a special robe is put on him and he's you know, uh, shown throughout the community? That's a robe of dignity. Uh, I don't have a similar modern idea in mind, but if, I don't know, if you're over 50, you might understand that. Remember when you were a kid, if you're over 50, your, your father had a chair that he sat in, like that was his chair, and maybe your mother had her chair, and nobody ever sat in dad's or grandpa's chair. And if you were in the chair and he walked in the room, you immediately got up. That's kind of his chair, you know? What would happen when a special guest came over? 
and your father or grandfather would stand up and say, take this seat right here. That's a place of honor, isn't it? Isn't that a place of dignity? Like, you know, according to old U.S. standards, it's kind of like that when the robe goes on the sun. He also puts a ring on his hand. That's a ring of authority where you would, you would have official family business and you'd stamp the, uh, the scroll with the seal on the hot wax. His dignity is restored. His authority is restored. His prosperity is restored. In this culture, slaves go barefoot, but sons wear shoes. Put the shoes on his feet. No son of mine goes without shoes, the father says. And finally, there's a reception, full restoration, the fatted calf. The Greek word here is one for grain. It's an interesting way to define a calf. This is the prime veal. And by the way, this calf would be, a family like this would only have one or two of these, and you would hold out for an special event. Probably in this case, this fatted calf was being held out for the wedding of the elder brother. But the reception of the younger is so important, the father gores the calf and throws a celebration for the prodigal. And then here's the joy of the father, verse 25. He was lost and he is found. We would translate this, he was lost and I found him. They are celebrating the father's costly love. Last point is the outrageous expression, verse 25 through 30. And this, of course, would be from the elder brother. Remember, Jesus never called it the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus told the story of two sons, not just one. One was the prodigal. The other, of course, is the elder. Verse 25, the elder hears the music. That word music is the Greek word symphony. It means there is a big celebration going on. We're not talking about someone playing a banjo here. We're talking about a big celebration in receiving the son. They're really kicking it off here. The father is holding nothing back. He calls one of the servants, the elder does, verse 26. This, by the way, just means young boy. The boys probably would not be in the celebration, the young boys. That was for adults. So he's probably kind of peeking into the tent. The elder calls him over and says, what's going on? And the, uh, the boy tells him that your father has received your, your brother safe and sound. Now the word shalom is not used in this passage, but the idea is all over it. Full restoration. Full sonship. No doubt the elder brother is going to rejoice just like the father, but he doesn't. What does he do? <clears throat> Verse 28. He would not go in. The older son refuses to honor the father. Now remember, the younger son, at the beginning of the story, shamed the father. And now the elder brother is doing what? Shaming the father. Now, just like, just like the father shames himself by giving the younger son the inheritance, the father once again is going to shame himself by going out to the elder brother. Because in a culture like this, when your son refuses to come in, you do not go out. No, you need to uphold your honor before the community. There's a whole lesson here on this. God loves prodigals. He does. He also loves the elder brother. He wants everybody to come in. This kid is angry. <clears throat> I mean, he is mad. Verse 29 
He answered his father, look, how's that, huh? When's the last time you looked at your father and said, look, I'm going to tell you something. All the more in the first century, you don't talk to a father like this in the first century. Look, these many years have I served you and I never disobeyed your commandment, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. All these years, I have been your slave, and it's not paying off. This is the dark side of religion. This is the dark side of morality. And the elder is, in effect, saying, you need to be forgiven by me for what you've done to me. Wow, what a role reversal for the, for the elder. I just want to talk about one point, literally one point this week. Let's talk about a Christian view of sin or running from God. Now, when we hear the word sin in the modern world, it's kind of strange to our ears because we don't really use that word anymore. So there are different categories for sin in the Bible. Like what does it mean to sin against God or sin against somebody else? There is, uh, let me give you a couple categories. First of all, there's what I'll call a legal category. Sometimes scripture teaches in some places that sin sin means you broke the law. There are laws that God set up, and those laws have been broken, and that's sin. The book of Romans, the book of Galatians, that has legal categories of sin. But in other places, there are what we would call worship categories of sin. This is big in the Psalms, where we're building our lives on anything except God. So, for example, the early church liked this. Augustine talked about disordered loves, where what is sin? Augustine would say they're disordered loves. You should love your job, but you shouldn't love your job like you love your family. And you should love your community, but you can't love your community like you would love God. You have to put God first, your family's in there, you know, and you kind of trickle down. Um, That God has ordered how we love things, and when we flip-flop those, that's a problem. It's okay to love, to be, you know, have people say nice things about you, but that can't be the highest good in your life. That's when it's a real problem. And by the way, that makes sense of passages like this, where Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and your father, you cannot be my disciple. He's not saying you have to hate your mother and your father. He's using the categories of disordered loves. You've got to love God first. Then you love mom and dad. Another one is creational. So there's legal, there's worship, there's a creational definition of sin, which means we're outside of our original design. God created us to walk with him and worship and fellowship with him. And if we're not doing that, We are outside of God's will. But the one that's highlighted in this parable is what we'll call relational. What is sin according to Jesus in this passage? Sin is running from God. It's running from a relationship with God. Jonah, remember Jonah? What did he do? He ran away from God. Gomer ran away from Hosea. All we like sheep have gone running from God. And that's what sin is in the parable. Sin is running from God. It's seeking a life apart from God. It's wanting the assets of the Father, but not a relationship with the Father. It's saying, God, give me a good job, give me a little life, give me all these things, but I really don't want anything to be with you. That's what Jonah did. That's what Gomer did. That's what the prodigal is doing. Now, the shocker in the story, of course, is that Jesus shows us not just one way to run from God, but two ways that people can run from God. The younger brother 
is irreligious. He throws his fists up towards the father and says, give me everything that belongs to me. The elder brother is religious. He tries to manipulate the father to get things. But they're both essentially saying the same thing. I don't want a relationship with you. I just want your stuff. So we have two categories. We have what's called prodigal lostness, where we just look at God and say, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I really don't care what you think. And then we have elder brother lostness, which is very self-righteous and manipulative and moralistic. The elder uses his good works to manipulate the father. He almost uses his good works as a weapon against the father to try to disarm the father, to try to put the father in his debt. He hates the law that he strives to keep. You get the language there? These many years have I served you. He's been serving, but hasn't been with the big a heart as it should have been. And he believes that he actually has a claim over the Father. And let me just say this. If you're living by the grace of God, there is nothing that God can't ask of you. But if we are living by our self-righteousness, there are limits to what we're going to let God ask us to do. Because we are actually putting God in debt, not vice versa. So what the elder brother won't do, here's a limit on him. He will not receive the younger. He'll do a lot of things, but he's not going to receive the younger. Now, what do both the prodigal and the elder have in common? We already said this. Number one, they both want the father's stuff, but they don't want the father. They want what the father can give them, but they don't want a relationship with God. One of them tries to take it by force. The other one tries to take it through manipulation. They're both about the father's business, but not about the father himself. Number two, listen, they are both trying to seek, enjoy life apart from God. That's pretty obvious with the prodigal. He's trying to enjoy life apart from God, but it's also true with the elder. You never made me marry with my friends. He doesn't really enjoy fellowship with the father either. He is just as estranged as the prodigal. The son here, the elder, is just as far from the father as the brother that he scorns and rejects. And this is one that I really want us to latch on. Listen to this. It's not just that the elder wants to celebrate without the father. The elder and the prodigal, they think that celebration is only possible without the father. They both believe the father just gets in the way, gums things up. He's a buzzkill. He's a joy kill. What a view of God they have. It's so oppressive. They could never say, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. So I'm going to close with this question. Which way do you run? Run like the prodigal? You're running like the elder? Maybe I kind of oscillate between the two. Which way do you run? I want you to know that regardless of the way that you're running, Jesus is telling you in this parable that God is pursuing you. He's chasing you. Sin is running from God, but what does the father do? He pursues the sons.
and he's pursuing you today. Maybe God sent a famine into your life, allowed a famine into your life. Maybe it's a little more subtle than that. Maybe he just speaks to your heart. Maybe he's working through your conscience that you know things are not right where they need to be. And maybe at this moment, a little bit of verse 17 is happening to you. This is what Jesus wants to happen to us when he came to himself. Maybe today, God is calling us to come to our senses, turn our hearts and lives to him, and discover the fullness of the joy that he wants us to have. Next week, we pick it up in the same place. We're going to talk about the cross and the prodigal. But I leave you with this thought. Which way do you run from God? And either way, I want you to know, God, God is pursuing you. Fall into his arms. Let his extravagant grace and love bring you in. Lord God, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. Help us to love you. Help us to walk with you. And I pray we'd be every bit of the saints you called us to be and you're changing us to be. Help us not to be moved by guilt, but moved by grace. And this week for the people of RBC, may the love of God surround you. May the grace of God keep you. And may the spirit of God lead you. Amen. God's blessing on you, friends.